You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Bruce MacArthur is a name that you likely know if you know a lot about true crime in Canada. Bruce is known as the oldest known serial killer in Canadian history. This week, in part one, we will take a look at the early years of Bruce MacArthur and the things that happened along the way to the crimes that he is more well known for. The interesting thing that you will discover is that the years that led up to Bruce becoming a serial killer are actually quite a bit different than the backstories that you hear from others who wind up committing similar crimes. Bruce MacArthur would end up being much older than most people are before something inside of him changed. Hello, and welcome to Gone But Never Forgotten, Part 1 on serial killer Bruce MacArthur. everyone and welcome back to GBNF. This week we're going to be covering a case that is seemingly closed and the suspect has been charged and found guilty. As Lance said, we're going to be covering serial killer Bruce MacArthur. But before we get into this topic, Lance, how are you? I am doing well. I'm happy that again we can look outside and see the sun shining and feel the warmth that spring and summer bring here in Canada. Activities are starting to move outside again, and I'm in my happy place. How are you doing, Julie? I'm doing well as well, and I could not agree more. The sun is awesome, and we're doing so much outside. It's amazing. But we also want to know what all of you are doing. We can't tell you enough. If you are following us on social media, reach out and have some conversation with us. Let us know what you like or don't like. Let us know what cases and episodes you have enjoyed. And let us know what cases you would perhaps like for us to cover. And if you don't follow us on social media, well, get your butts onto our pages and give us a follow or a like. We want to get to know you. And maybe you want to get to know us. Well, you... I'm certainly not all that exciting of a follow. You're much prettier and more popular than I am, but I'm also okay with that. Whatever you say, seems like a cover-up to me. I think Lance needs to, to be receiving more messages, you guys. Uh, no thanks. I'm okay. Uh, let's start the show, shall we? All right. Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur was born on the 8th of October, 1951 in Lindsay, Ontario, which is approximately 130 kilometers northeast of Toronto. 
He was raised on a farm in Argyle, which is also in that same Kawartha Lakes region of Ontario. He was raised by his parents, who also raised his sister and other troubled teens, who they fostered from Toronto. The family home was a busy one, often with six to ten children in their care at a time. The MacArthur family had a good reputation in the area by all accounts. As a young child, he attended a one-room schoolhouse just outside of Woodville, Ontario, and he is remembered by classmates as being a teacher's pet and as someone that would tell on his classmates, especially the other boys. He is remembered also as not really fitting in with the other boys in his school. He was also known as being a tremendous singer. He won many singing contests. Bruce's mother was Irish in heritage and had Catholic beliefs, while his father was Scottish in heritage and Presbyterian in terms of beliefs. Both of his parents were very devout in their beliefs, and that led to many arguments between the two. Bruce is remembered as siding with his mother in those arguments, which led to quite a bit of division between him and his father, who Bruce felt was aware of Bruce's sexual orientation. Bruce himself knew that he was gay, but he had issues accepting his own sexuality. I can see that. Even in today's world, it is incredibly difficult for some people to accept and admit their own sexual orientation, let alone the scrutiny and pressure that comes with outwardly admitting those things. But certainly in the 1950s and 1960s, here in Canada, that would have been amplified especially given that he was growing up in rural Ontario. Absolutely. I know from experience of my own, when I helped a friend sort of fight the system here in Ontario because he was being mistreated for being gay, that even when I was growing up in the 90s, it was not, and still really to this day is not, an easy decision to openly admit to being gay and anything that comes along with that acknowledgement. For high school or secondary school, for those more familiar with that term, Bruce would be bused to Fenland Falls Secondary School, where he would meet and start dating a girl named Janice Campbell. Both Bruce and Janice would graduate in 1970, and Bruce would move on to take and graduate from a program in general business. Bruce and Janice would actually get married when Bruce was 23 years old. Bruce would begin working for Eaton's department store as a buyer's assistant in 1973 and would work mostly downtown Toronto at the location that would later become the Eaton Center. He would leave Eaton's in 1978 and start working as a traveling salesman for McGregor Socks and he later worked for Stanfields, which is a garment company. The family dynamic started to change for Bruce's family in the mid-1970s. Bruce's father would be diagnosed with a brain tumor and he was forced to live in a nursing home. Tensions would then rise between Bruce and his mother as he watched her move on with her life as she's starting to date another man. Bruce would actually grow to be much closer with his father than his mother at this point in his life. Tragically, Bruce would lose his mother to cancer in 1978, and his father would die in 1981. In the time between those two deaths, Bruce, Bruce and his wife moved into a home in Oshawa, Ontario on Ormond Drive. By 1981, they had two children, a daughter, Melanie, and a son, Todd. 
1986, the family would purchase a home on Cartriff Avenue in Oshawa. Bruce worked hard at his church and tried to keep himself busy to avoid his homosexual leanings. That would all change, though, in the early 1990s, as Bruce would start to have marital affairs with men during that time frame. In the early 1990s, Bruce would admit to his wife that he was gay, and they would agree to continue living together. Things would grow increasingly difficult, though, and tense as the years went by. In late 1993, Bruce would lose his job in the clothing trade, and he and Janice started to face many financial difficulties due to his loss of work and legal issues that they were taking on regarding their son, Todd, who had been making offensive and obscene phone calls to women that he didn't know. The couple took out another mortgage on their home in 1997 and wound up filing for bankruptcy in 1999. Also in 1997, Bruce would separate from Janice and he moved to Toronto because there was not a vibrant gay community in Oshawa and the community in Toronto was growing fast. Bruce would be a frequent attendee at the gay bars in Toronto and even was in a four-year relationship with another man. When he and the other man broke up, his divorce from Janice was being finalized and Bruce also began a prescription of Prozac. Prozac was a drug that was prescribed and widely used to treat depression, OCD, bulimia, and many other disorders. Prozac also has a slew of side effects, though. Serious ones include things like mania, seizures, increased levels of suicidal behavior, and an increased risk of bleeding. Bruce would also start, around this time, to start seeking work as a landscaper. Just a few weeks after Bruce's 50th birthday, things started to change. Or, at least as far as what the police and the public know, Bruce's life started to change. That was the first time that he would have a real run-in with the law for something that was pretty severe. Just after noon on Halloween in 2001, Bruce would follow Mark Henderson, who was an actor and model in Toronto, to his apartment building, and inside after being invited in by Henderson to see his Halloween costume. Once inside the apartment, MacArthur would attack Henderson from behind with an iron pipe that he often carried with him, seemingly for protection. A lot of reports of this attack state that Henderson managed to fight back before he went unconscious. However, that was not the case. This is something that is erroneously reported. In an April 14, 2021 article with CTV News, Mark Henderson did an interview with journalist Scott Lightfoot. Mark said that he was brutally attacked by MacArthur and he said, quote, It was a devastating experience. I fought for my life and in the various reports it says that I went unconscious. I can tell you that I never once went unconscious. I was conscious the whole time. It wasn't until the ambulance got there that I began to panic, unquote. Bruce would essentially go straight to police headquarters and report to police that he was the one that attacked Mark. Thus, the police did not need to investigate and he had charges filed against him while Mark was still in emergency at the hospital. That meant that the police didn't even need to interview Mark Henderson, which is crazy to me. 
Yeah, it really didn't make a lot of sense to me either that there was no interview. Um, but I guess it makes sense in terms of Bruce covering his own ass here. They, the police were aware of the abuse and they were made aware with the, his connection that Bruce was the attacker. That would mean that there wasn't much for them to waste resources on investigating, I guess. Bruce would plead guilty to charges of assault with a weapon and assault causing bodily harm. What is crazy, though, is that in that same interview in 2021, Mark said that he has to this very day not had a single conversation with a Toronto police officer about the attack from Bruce MacArthur. Wow. So after everything that transpired after this, the police didn't even see fit to have a conversation with Mark about this assault? Not one. Now, as we will see, there may have been some reasons for that. Back to the confession. Bruce said to police that he did not remember the attack, nor did he remember why he attacked on April 11, 2003, he received a conditional sentence of 729 days, which is two years less a day. Another charge of carrying a concealed weapon would actually be dropped as a part of his plea. Prosecutors wanted Bruce to serve jail time, but instead opted for the conditional sentence because psychiatric and other testing was done, and it seemed that Bruce was actually a very low risk to reoffend. Instead, Bruce managed to avoid the inside of a jail cell. He spent one year under house arrest, and then he had an imposed curfew for six months and three more years of probation for the attack on Mark Henderson. Part of the court-imposed restrictions for Bruce prevented him from being within the Church and Wellesley area of Toronto, which was the gay village, except for work, or doctor's appointments. He could not spend any time with male prostitutes, and he also was not allowed to be within 10 meters of Mark's home or Mark's workplace. Bruce would also be prohibited from a firearm for 10 years, and he was not to buy, have in his possession, or consume any drugs whatsoever without a proper prescription. He, of course, also had to submit his DNA to a database and needed to see a psychologist and also take anger management courses. Unfortunately, as we have come across before, these type of restrictions are pretty much never enforceable once the actual house arrest is over. These conditions will generally only come into play if a suspect finds themselves running afoul of the law again and then those conditions can serve as a means to arrest someone as quickly as possible. But unfortunately, there are not people dispatched to, um, you know, follow someone's every move, purchase, or indiscretion. With the benefit of hindsight, obviously Bruce was going to be a reoffender. But it is definitely strange for a serial killer to wait this long into their life before something switches and we start to see a new pattern of behavior. For sure. It's not just for criminals either. I think by the time you reach your 50th birthday, most of us are relatively set in our ways and who we are. For me though, I knew a lot about this case, but I didn't even realize that the first crime that really got him on the radar of anyone came so close to his 50th birthday. 
So this is definitely a milestone or even a midlife crisis number for a lot of people. It's almost like he decided that he was not happy with his life at that point, and instead he wanted to change who he was and what he was doing in his life. I'll get more into this later, I'm sure, but I actually think that this is part of what happened here. Bruce seemed to have a lot of shame when it came to his sexuality, which could have stemmed from his religious upbringing. There were definitely a lot of triggers, so to speak, in his life. That much is for sure. Yeah, something definitely either changed at that 50-year mark, or he let something out of himself that had always been there. As much as it seemed that he was ashamed in large part by his sexuality, as he was proceeding with this case through court for the assault charges, he really started to embrace that part of himself. He joined up on a plethora of gay dating websites, including Silver Daddies, Man Jam, Grinder, Bear 411, and many more. Bruce would eventually also join Facebook in 2011, and he would show off the lifestyle that he was living with a lot of posts embracing the parties, nightlife, vacations, and money being spent on his dates and his social life. Many of his photos would include men of Middle Eastern descent, which will become more relevant here in a, as we look into uh, the larger Bruce MacArthur story. By 2011, Bruce had also become a regular on the nightlife scene in the gay community, and he was recognized and seen often at the bars and restaurants in the area. He had also moved in 2008 to Leaside Towers near Thorncliffe Park, where he was living on the 19th floor apartment. This was about five kilometers northeast from Church and Wellesley. Around this time, though, there would be almost two different Bruces that would start to emerge. He was seen and known in the community as being into BDSM, and he was often looking for submissive men. He developed a reputation for enjoying rough sex as well. He was a frequent in the gay community at this point, after his conditions were met from the previous charges, and most people were aware of who Bruce was and that he had previously been banned from the Church and Wellesley community as a part of those conditions. He was also braggadocious at times in regards to his behavior as well. He told many people disturbing stories of his escapades. One such story included Bruce being told to leave a coffee shop in the village and Bruce exploded into an absolute rage and knocked all of the glasses off the counter in his anger as he left the establishment. He is like, I think we, we have all known someone or been in that situation before where it's just like all of a sudden just something small will happen and just just like that. Yep. You know, yep. Like, it doesn't take much to set them off. Yeah, like, I mean, I worked in a bar for a while and, like, I saw people come into the bar and just start throwing glasses out of nowhere. So, I mean, I've seen it before. It's not, but I think that we can all associate with that incident. And it's like, yeah, like, that's, you know, it's obviously not the normal reaction to things. Yeah, well, I think when you have a lot of, uh, like, anger, rage inside of you anything kind of from the outside that you can use as a reason to let that out is just what happens, you know? Yep. 
And it definitely wasn't unusual to witness Bruce losing his cool or getting red with anger or screaming and cursing and even using derogatory terms towards other people that were in the community. He was also paranoid on top of everything. Although I don't know if paranoid is actually the right word. He was worried that people were always talking about him and I mean he wasn't wrong so it's not necessarily paranoia. Um, there have been many reports over the years of people having told and having been told to stay very clear of Bruce MacArthur. During this time, Bruce began to work for himself. Having worked in business and sales for his entire life up until that point, Bruce was now working as a landscaper. His company was named Artistic Designs. He was more of a gardener than a landscaper, though. Usually, when he went on jobs, he had another older white gentleman with him who appeared to be his boyfriend, and he usually had a Southeast Asian or Middle Eastern man with him if he needed more day labor. One thing that I definitely found creepy, almost on like a John Gacy creepy clown level, is that in his off-season from landscaping, one of the things that Bruce did to make money was he portrayed Santa Claus at an Ed Agincourt mall. And he also arranged floral displays to be sold and auctioned off for different charities. I mean, you're not wrong. That is a little bit weird. Um, there definitely seemed to be two sides of Bruce that were becoming more apparent. The question is whether the one life was to cover up the second life or which Bruce was the real Bruce, so to speak. On one hand, you had a man who seemed intent to help the community and be involved in the community, and it didn't matter if that was the gay community or the community at large. Where did the fits of rage fall into everything? He said that he didn't remember attacking Mark Henderson, and he clearly had explosions, some that we just talked about, and perhaps others that never came to light. That's if you really believe that he didn't remember these things also. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are certainly people that experience these fits of rage where they black out and perhaps don't remember anything or much of what happened. I know it's a thing, but I also think that Bruce MacArthur, MacArthur might have been smart enough to know that he needed to cover his ass and quick in this situation. So do you think that this act was premeditated? I guess I can't really say that or go that far because we don't know and we might never definitively know. I do have a lot of opinions on this case um, and I do think that a lot more of my opinions will come out in part two of this series on him. But from what I know about Bruce, which obviously doesn't come from any firsthand knowledge... I think, like I said, that he had a lot of self-loathing issues and a lot of stress in his life. By no means am I saying that to explain away what he did in this attack, or especially with what was to come in his life, but I do, at this point in the story, see a man who either just enjoyed being a dominant sexual person and had personal taste for Middle Eastern men, or a man who outright hated himself for his own sexual interests and took out that anger on other people who were marginalized and perhaps had their own reasons for hiding their sexual preferences like religion and background. I do see what you're saying here. If it wasn't strictly a taste for men from that area of the world, 
Perhaps in his own way, this was his own version of serial killers who would attack and go after prostitutes and native women and things like that. Exactly. I mean, let's be completely honest here also. It's not like the LGBTQ2 plus community at large wasn't marginalized also. As we will see as we dive into what happened next and how the authorities responded, there's a lot of meat on the bone with this one. But I'm truly finding myself wondering if he simply was so angry that angry with himself, I guess, that he was bisexual or gay, that he became a dominant as a means to somehow find a way to let that anger out. And that anger would be seen as romantic to the submissive men that he came into contact with, right? Perhaps they wouldn't even know what was bubbling beneath the surface with Bruce. He seemed relatively good at this point, at least, at separating certain areas of his life. Unfortunately, though, as we will discuss in the next episode, Bruce MacArthur was not finished with his assault that he committed on Mark Henderson. That was not the end of his story. In 2010, in line with the retention policy of the Toronto Police Services, almost all transcripts, documents, and information on the assault charges would be destroyed. The only documents that would remain past that point in time were transcripts of the guilty plea and sentencing, the reports from his psychologist, and all pre-sentencing reports that were produced at the trial. The only thing that existed past that point were photos of the injuries that Mark sustained and the weapon that was used in the attack. And in 2014, Bruce MacArthur was granted a record suspension, which means that the entire assault was removed from his record and would no longer even appear in criminal background checks on Bruce that were conducted for work or as a part of investigations. Bruce MacArthur was free after 13 years from any shackles that were holding him back after that first attack. That, however, is not to say that he waited to be doing other horrible things until the record was cleared. This just gave him enough, or even, I guess, more leeway and protection almost from being caught when things really broke loose. So, Julie, I'm going to ask you, what do you think about um, what we've covered so far on Bruce MacArthur? Because I know you weren't particularly... Uh, familiar with the case I guess yeah like I I was pretty young at the time um but it's just I mean it's all very sad uh first of all but I also think things like this that you know it's almost like he just got like a slap on the hand and then it's all disappeared and gone like I don't like those things I think your history especially when you're an adult should stay on your record yeah I mean I see where you're coming from with that like I can understand and I've said in past episodes um, you know when someone commits a crime when they're definitely like young like a child or even a teenager mm -hmm. I do think that you know you kind of should get some kind of chance at restarting or you know getting a mulligan but I mean yeah like Bruce is 50 years old and he beats up a man here with a pipe. Yeah, like yeah. and then it's like, like he knows better. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and like maybe it was a fit of rage, but guess what? I kind of want to know that that fifty-year-old man's fit of rage is going to stay on his record, yeah. just in case there's another fit of rage. And I mean, Lord knows we're going to cover. There's a lot of fits of rage. Oh yeah, well, and not only that, like think about all the people that you meet or work with that they're 
uh, records have just been erased. Like you could be working with someone who, you know, beat someone up really badly. And then now that's not even on their record. You would never know about that. Yeah, and we're totally going to get into this more um, in the next episode, but it's wild. I mean, Bruce MacArthur was under the noses of everyone. Like it almost seems like there was a whole bunch of arrows pointing at this man. Like at least question this guy, but my goodness, like I'm going to prep you for next week. You and the listeners. Get ready to be mad, because yeah. I'm mad. Well, next week, we will look at the things that took Bruce MacArthur from being an attacker and an abuser, and we will also talk about the startling conclusion to the story. If you can hold off until next week, just wait until you hear how Bruce was captured and what he was doing at the time of his arrest. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's going to blow your mind, too. Be prepared to be angry, shocked, surprised, and... Spoiler alert, you're kind of watching an episode of Dexter when you listen next week. So, he's an asshat, isn't he? Hey, my line doesn't work when you use it first. You can't lead it into me like that. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sure you are. Until next week, thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten, and do your best to improve the world around you in all that you do. Don't be a bad person, and don't be an asshat. Thank you for listening, and be a good person, and we'll see you next time. Ciao.